Welcome to something to wrestle with. Bruce Pritchard. Bruce Pritchard. Well, you know. That's not a rib. She pooted. She pooted. What a rib. No, yeah, but There's no box of gimmicks. Rumor and innuendo. I don't deal in rumor and innuendo. Was he there? I was there. I don't give a shit. I ain't scared of shit. I ain't scared of shit. Fuck him. You, Bruce. I love you. Double cheeseburger. Double cheese. Hey, hey, it's Conrad Thompson, and you're listening to Something to Wrestle with Bruce Pritchard. Bruce, what's going on, man? How are you? You know, Conrad, just uh, been lazing out by the pool, doing a whole lot of nothing. You know how it is around here, man. Just There's just so little to do that, um, I don't know, get, just getting bored. Sure, sure. Well, we appreciate you finally being able to uh, sit down and us hook up. You and I have had the craziest schedule ever. You for work, me for, well, some interesting family stuff that I'm sure everybody's in the loop on. And uh, we're finally able to sit down and record. Our plan was to air Judgment Day last week. Life threw us a curveball. So we aired the roast of Bruce Pritchard, which had been in our plans to air the week of StarCast. So that got moved up. Uh, StarCast is happening right now uh if you haven't already make plans to join us on fight you can see all the events from last night and of course everything going on today and tomorrow and sunday and sunday it's our last scheduled live something to wrestle and uh bruce i'm pretty excited about this this will be uh, the first time you and i've had something like this live stream and it's our last scheduled something to wrestle yeah it's kind of one of those happy sad moments it is a little weird because you and I have gotten so comfortable with, you know, at least once, sometimes twice, or even three times a month, uh, getting a band together and, and jetting across somewhere in the United States and gathering up hundreds of something to wrestle fans and throwing together a live show. And now, uh, you're jetting across the globe for millions of WWE fans instead. And, um, it's a little bittersweet to know that this might be our last live something to wrestle i hope not but if your schedule continues i don't see how we've got time to do anymore well by god the definition of impossible is nothing so by hey look there will be more live it's just a matter of when and matter of actually getting it scheduled getting on the books and figuring out how and when we can do it so uh, i refuse to give up and we will figure it out. It's just, frankly, the break will be nice a little bit. <laughs> Did you hear what I said? The break. Yes. Okay. Well, either way, uh, go ahead and, and make plans to join us on your holiday break this weekend. Of course it's Memorial day and what better way to spend it than, uh, overdosing on some wrestling at Starcast on fight. Uh, but let's talk about why we're here today. This is a big one. Uh, I'm pretty excited about this. Judgment day, 2004, uh, we have recently talked about this show a little bit when we covered JBL, I think this is, uh, one of the shows that really made him. And I think even he would agree, uh, it was all about his feud with Eddie Guerrero and Eddie Guerrero's performance on this particular show is unworldly. 
So if you're only going to watch one thing on the WWE network this week, may I recommend it be this main event from judgment day, 2004. Of course, we're covering it because it happened 15 years ago, May 16th, 2004 at the Staples center in Los Angeles, California, and did a 0.38 buy rate, which is roughly a $3 million gross for company revenue. And, um, I guess we should mention we're less than two months away from the draft and WrestleMania 20. So we're still very fresh into this sort of new era of the WWE. And we've covered that draft in the archives and just recently covered WrestleMania 20. So if you'd like to catch up on those, you can certainly do so at something to wrestle.com. And Paul Heyman was the SmackDown GM and he's been drafted to raw and he promptly quit in storyline. Uh, we also saw triple H be drafted to SmackDown and then a trade would send him back to raw in exchange for Booker T and the Dudley boys, man. Uh, it feels like the more things change, the more they stay the same, you know, the draft happens and then maybe Vince changes his mind and no, let's just go back to how it was. Well, I think there's just sometimes once everybody gets settled and you see it, it's one thing on paper, but then when you actually put it all together, you look at it and go, ah, maybe this works better over here. And you make your adjustments and then try and settle in for a little while. You know, we've talked a lot about how in 99, the business is just at an all time high. And that's always fun to sort of see how quickly it's growing. That's not the story here in 04 In May of 03. Your average attendance is 4,629 folks in May of 04, we're down to 3,878 folks. So we're down 16.2% as far as average attendance for these shows. And your gate is actually down a little more. You go from 162 down to 133. Uh, so you're down 17.7%. Uh, your house shows are not nearly as sold out either. Um, obviously with less attendance, if you're running the same size building, that's going to follow suit as well. Uh, but ratings are down a little bit too. In May of 03, you're at a 3.8 in May of 04, you're at a 3.62 and a really, really alarming is when you've got two digit losses on ratings here. When you go from a, a 3.2 for SmackDown in May of 03 to a 2.93 for SmackDown in 04. So this is the first time we're seeing something with a two in front of it. Uh, chat me up about, you know, how the ratings were being viewed here. This is a, a post Monday night war era. Maybe it's not as important as it once was. Maybe it still is. I know fans and wrestling observer readers and, you know, people who sort of keep up with the business end, they would say, oh no, uh, this is something that we need to pay attention to. Is that the same reaction from within the office? Well, we definitely were paying attention to it. However, at the same time, we knew that changes had to be made, not only on SmackDown, but on Raw as well. So there was a conscious effort, and the statement was made often. Okay, we're going to have to take uh, maybe four steps back to take a couple going forward. And we knew that we knew that this was time to shake things up, make some investments and do some experiments with talent to see if it's going to work. It was a conscious effort. We knew 
things were going to go backwards for a little while because we just didn't have the storylines and we didn't have the talent at the time set in storylines to really know. And, and this was an experimental time. I do want to talk a little bit here about Steve Austin, because it does feel like, um, this is the end of an era. And maybe it's one of the reasons why, you know, it feels like such an interesting time in the company. Steve Austin and Vince McMahon have verbally agreed that they're going to do business together indefinitely. Um, but they're going to sort of try to go their own separate ways because contractually, uh, they're not going to work it out for him to be a full-time character. Uh, and that happens when they meet in San Antonio on April 6th. And one of the things that I, I saw in my research is that they're going to work on some of these projects together. Of course, they want to do a WWE film with, you know, so he has a movie vehicle and, and we know what that's going to be, but also saw that they had plans to market a stone cold, Steve Austin beer. Now we know fast forward, I don't know, a decade. And there was the broken school IPA, but that's not what the plan was here. This was, this is Oh four. So there was a plan for a WWE stone cold beer. Is that right? What can you tell us about that? Well, we had been working, God, we had been working on a beer probably since 98 going back in time of trying to do something with whether it was, uh, whether, whether not rather, whether it was Steve basically sponsoring a beer or having his own beer. And we had talked several times with different brewers across the country, across the world, to do a beer, a special beer, uh, from the Coors Brewing Company to the, uh, got Anheuser-Busch, the, their light brand, to do something with that. And some Canadian beers had their hat in the ring, and it was an ongoing process. Trying to get through that process and weed your way through was a painful process in and of itself. However, you know, we had talked about it. Yes, we, we definitely had been working on a beer for Steve for a few years at this point, And it had come to, it had started to come to fruition where it looked like it was actually going to happen when everything, communication and just disagreements started to take place. Let's talk a little bit about, um, something that was written in the torch and I didn't know this. The WWE was under the impression that Austin was close to signing a deal with dream stage entertainment. Although those at DSE and others say the deal is not close to being finalized. Austin is said to be waiting for offers from any interested parties in Japan before committing to one. Although DSE would have the inside track because they seem to have the most money and also have Bill Goldberg. So it is fascinating to me that even here in the early two thousands or maybe the mid two thousands at this point, I guess for a four, when things in America aren't exactly what you'd like for them to be, you think, oh, well, I'll just go make money in Japan. That, that sort of feels pretty old school. Uh, but DSC of course is dream stage entertainment. And, and some of our MMA fan listeners would be familiar with that because that's who put on the pride events. Um, you know, back in the day, there were, there were two major organizations, the UFC here in America and pride fighting championships, uh, across the pond in Japan. And they also put on a series of wrestling events, uh, named hustle. 
and, and hustle was going to be like their big new thing. When you guys hear, or do you hear that maybe Steve is talking about doing something in Japan? Because I mean, they did have some names that you would remember, you know, from way back in the day, like Abdul, the butcher, who was obviously a big deal in Japan. And of course they had big Japanese talent, like the great Muda, but they also had Goldberg once Bob Sapp, who was a, a big name for a minute, which I know in hindsight doesn't seem like it should have been a thing. Did you hear he was talking to Japan and, and was Vince McMahon concerned about that? I don't, I don't think we were ever really concerned about it because of Steve's health and his neck issue being the way that it is to work that style, uh, with Goldberg might've been different. Uh, cause I think that bill probably could have protected Steve and that they could have gotten through whatever they needed to get through in a match, but Steve going over there, there wasn't that big of a concern. And you hear those rumors all the time, especially at that time frame, because if a guy was unhappy, oh, I'll just go to Japan. And Japan was also starting to lose its allure here because the, the bigger companies just weren't doing the kind of business that they had done before, but it was, I'm sure it was a rumor that was out there. And from our vantage point, as far as Steve going to work for somebody else on any kind of full-time basis, that wasn't, certainly wasn't a fear. It was, well, we definitely want Steve for us. If Steve's going to do anything in the wrestling business, (laughs) we want him to do it for us. And that's, that was the battle. That was what was taking place. Uh, you know, it's speculated, of course, that what hustle would want to do. And I don't think this is a big stretch is if they were to land Austin to try to do the match with Goldberg. And it just feels like an Austin Goldberg match, not happening for Vince McMahon and instead happening for Japan would have made his freaking mind melt. Do you think that, I mean, hypothetically, if that discussion would have gotten farther enough along and Goldberg was allegedly saying he wanted seven figures per man to give hustle the rights to market that match. Do you think Vince would have done whatever he could to, to beat that offer and, and try to make that match happen in WWE? I don't know if he would have, uh, I really don't know. Cause obviously we never got there. It was never taken seriously to that next level. Had Steve gone to work for someone else in a wrestling capacity. I think that would have hurt. That would have hurt Vince. I think it would have hurt him personally, but it, you know, it didn't. So it's kind of hard to speak to that. And if there was a match out there, the match was definitely Goldberg versus Austin. Yeah. I mean, it's, there would have been money in them, their heels and, and Wade even speculates that he thinks it would do 375,000 or more buys if it was on a WWE pay-per-view, you know, as a main event, um, where does that rank with dream matches? Do you think, I mean, uh, it looks like we're going to get undertaker Goldberg. Where do you think Austin Goldberg is all time dream match? I think it's right up at the top. I think you have, especially from the attitude era and the Monday night wars era, that was the dream match. There were really two. It was Austin Goldberg I mean, I'll give it three Austin Goldberg, um, Austin Hulk and undertaker sting. All right, let's keep it moving here. Um, Brock Lesnar is going to make the news because on April 17th, he is involved in a motorcycle accident. His bike collided with a minivan, those damn minivans. 
God, I hope that minivan was okay. Yeah. Uh, he's taken to a hospital, has glass removed from his forehead. He's going to need a few stitches, but he's telling everybody he's fine. And he's going to work out for NFL scouts on May 18th in Phoenix. And the latest word from the NFL insiders, according to Wade Keller, is that no one was taking his bid to play in the league seriously last month. But now that they've seen him work out and gotten some numbers, more than one team is at least intrigued. Um, when you're hearing that, Hey, wait a minute, maybe he's getting a little attention and sports illustrated is even gonna, you know, write a feature story on him. Do you think this is, this has more legs or was this always sort of viewed as, eh, this ain't going to happen, but let him go try. Well, we wanted him to get it out of his system. That was one thing. Uh, I don't think that anybody thought a guy who had never played football was going to be able to walk on and play professional football. Then you see this son of a bitch working out the way that he does. And with very few exceptions, I've never seen an athlete like Brock Lesnar, who's been able to adapt to the different sports that he's chosen to excel at. And I think if Brock had another year and had actually, you know, played a little more football, he could still be playing ball for all we know. The, the, the guy is just this really freaky, freaky genetic freak. Um, a freaky genetic freak, a freaky genetic freak. Yes. And I think if he had had more time, who knows? Because he shocked a lot. He shocked us and we knew, and he certainly shocked the football world enough to get him on a, on a team, uh, didn't last long, but he made it, which is that's one of those one in a millions that you would never dream would happen. So let's talk a little bit about, um, Lance storm, because it's reported here at the beginning of may, uh, quote, after months, if not years of frustration with his role in WWE Lance storm announced on Monday on his website that he is retiring as an active wrestler. Uh, he has said he's going to be moving into a role as a trainer with the developmental territory, Ohio Valley, and he hopes to eventually move to a position as a road agent with the WWE. And so his, his final match is going to air on Sunday night. Heat against Stevie Richards, and he's going to cite his frustration with his quote, lack of contributions, which I guess means lack of push. Uh, but also his back problems have been greater lately than he had been letting on. He's got some uh, bulging discs and it's caused him to miss some house shows, but this is a guy who'd been around forever, you know, Smoky mountain and ECW and WCW. And now of course here in WWE, but he retired relatively young. Um, were you shocked to hear that Lance storm was going to hang him up in Oh four? No, no, not, uh, no, he had some, uh, nagging back injuries and there wasn't I think that Lance was a great guy to have on the card because whoever you put him in the ring with, he's going to have a good match. There just wasn't a whole lot of personality there. And Lance was bland on the microphone. The audience didn't really connect with him. However, when the bell rang, uh, it was hard to find a better performer. Plus he had a skill that not everybody can do and that's teaching. And with Lance, he was able to, parlay what he could do in the ring and teach people how to do it. Now, some of the greatest workers in the world can go out and do it, 
They just can't tell you how they do it or how to do it. Lance has that skill and tried to hone that to make him a trainer, but it was no big surprise at all. I guess we should mention Lance retires when he's just 35 years old, uh, which is obviously, you know, before a lot of prime years in professional wrestling, you know, all this time later, of course, he has gone on to become one of the more prolific trainers and, and you said teachers. What do you think his legacy in the business is going to be? You know, hopefully, uh, I think it'll, it will probably be his contributions to the folks that he's trained over the years and, and brought into the business and, you know, Lance in Smoky mountain wrestling, that was his first big national exposure, but Jericho being in that tag team, I think Jericho is the one who took the spotlight there because Chris had the personality, Chris had, you know, that, that package. Um, and then Lance was the workhorse. Uh, Chris was the Ricky Morton and Lance was the Robert Gibson. So as years go by, I would hope that Lance's legacy in the business would be one of his contribution to the business afterward, uh, with his training. There's a lot written about, um, Johnny ACE and there is in the newsletters here, the rise to power of John Laurinaitis 38 has been notable considering as an active wrestler, most of his experience was in a different culture with a totally different product. As new WWE vice president of talent relations, it solidifies him as one of the most important and most powerful players in the industry. And they do a little bit of a, a write up about what his background was and when he broke in and how he bounced around. But he also, they also talk about when he joined WCW, uh, it was happening at, at sort of a weak point for WCW. Eric Bischoff is the person who hired him to. Uh, be an advisor and help the wrestlers lay out the matches as you know, WCW is essentially dying and it would be written. He got a lot of praise at first from the wrestlers, but those in the company who had high hopes coming from a logical background, since if nothing else, all Japan had logical booking, particularly compared to the WCW nonsense that was killing the product were ultimately disappointed. He was viewed as more of a politician, never spoke up. And even when the stupidest ideas were presented, he managed to get along great with everyone and keep his job amidst the chaos. When most of the WCW front office wasn't hired after the WWF bought the remnants of the company, Laurinaitis was not only hired, but quickly became second in command and heir apparent to Jim Ross and the talent relations department. So we'll talk a little bit more about his role, but were you shocked when he became the new head of talent relations or did he take to it like a fish to water? And how do you respond to the criticisms that he had positioned himself more as a politician? Well, okay. I'm, we have a lot of fun here talking about John Laurinaitis and, and I've always said this about John and, and we joke about it privately, even to this day that until you've been in the talent relations role, you have no idea. And talent relations is probably the most thankless role in the company. You get all the heat, you get none of the credit. And John went in knowing that and 
did a hell of a job trying to follow up Jim Ross, who also did an excellent job in the talent relations department. But Jim was, Jim was on his way out. Jim wanted to move back to Oklahoma and Jim wanted to do broadcasting, not do as much uh, work in the office. So John was younger, hungrier and wanted it. I mean, he really wanted to have that position. He wanted that job and he did a good job. It's not easy. And what people on the outside that have never been there, what they call politicking is called doing his job. And you're the bad guy. You're the hatchet man. You deliver the shitty news. You're the one that has to tell, you know, give everybody the information they don't want. And it's, uh, it's thankless. It's all 24 seven. And John did a good job at that. He really, and truly did. I, like I said, I love to bust his balls and we all point to, you know, the fuck ups like hiring the wrong one legged man. Oh, he don't have one leg. Um, things like that. But at the same time, you know, we've all had our fuck ups and his was just funnier to, to do because he talks like this and loves Vince's arms. God damn, they're huge. It was for us, man, that's, we were, we were grooming him for that from day one when he came into the company because he had that kind of an aptitude. He, he fit well in the office and he fit well in the locker room. Talk to me a little bit about the difference in style between a JR and a John Laurinaitis, specifically what they're, they're looking for in talent. You know, I, I don't think it's a big secret that JR is going to look for legitimate, strong athletic backgrounds, you know, whether it's college football or high level amateur wrestlers with the idea being, if you've excelled in those sports, you have the mental toughness that is needed to survive in pro wrestling. I think that's how Jr. would categorize it, but Johnny Ace has a different approach. And one of the criticisms would be that he doesn't value, you know, those athletic backgrounds the same way. And instead he's going to put more of an emphasis on bringing up a certain type of look, whether it's with size or bodies. Um, so we're going to hire some some girls who look like they're right out of playboy, um, and, and try to see if we can make something out of them because they're pretty people, maybe more so than they had a strong background. Is that a fair criticism or, or how would you categorize the two? No, because it comes down to what the creative team and what Vince McMahon is looking for at the time. So you try to get into your developmental system as many as you can to have a variety whether it's the athletic type, whether it's the beauty queen type, whatever that may be, you try to have a choice and you try to have some variety in the recruits that you're recruiting. It, it's not Jim Ross didn't have it. I didn't have it. Johnny didn't have it. We didn't have free reign to just go out and hire whoever the hell we wanted. So it was, what are you looking for? Okay, we're going to go out and we're going to find you several of those, that type and several guys that may fit that, put them in developmental and take it from there. So as far as Johnny and what he brought in, he was brought in what he was asked to bring in. That wasn't, that wasn't 100% his call and here's what we need. Uh, that didn't take place. That was a directive. So, so Vince used to really value college football backgrounds and then he stopped 
He still values it. No, he still values it. And he valued it when Johnny was doing it too. It probably got more press from a JR, if you will, because goddamn, I, I like, I, I like my college athletes and, and JR had a higher value on that. It's not that Vince didn't by any stretch of the imagination. Vince wanted athletes. Vince wanted athletes that could adapt and that could learn the business. Let's talk a little bit about, um, tape libraries, because this makes the observer, uh, WWE is getting very aggressive and trying to purchase pretty much all the available semi-major league pro wrestling video footage on the market. The idea is that Vince wants everything that is there. The company at this point already owns the AWA library, the WCW library, theoretically owns the Crockett and old Georgia libraries through the WCW purchase, as well as the ECW library and the Smoky mountain library. I believe they have purchased the stampede library or are on the verge of doing so. And a lot of work is being done currently on this project. And the company this past week hired Peter Clifford as the new vice president of affiliate sales. Clifford's main responsibility will be to sell the idea to cable and satellite services as Clifford has worked since 1996 in both affiliate sales and later managing director of affiliate ad sales for the golf channel, where he managed a golf video on demand venture. So it comes out here in 04 that, Hey, Vince is trying to collect all the footage everywhere with the understanding that the original idea is going to be WWE on demand and WWE 24 seven. And of course we know what that became the network. When did you first know that Vince was going to start snatching all this stuff up? Because as he acquires some of these old libraries, they are major expenditures in hindsight, not nearly as major as they looked at the time. Did you know this was always the plan? And had he always laid it out like that? The plan evolved, the plan's still evolving. And when different areas became available and those properties became available here, here's the thing that a lot of people don't understand the older wrestling promotions, uh, we'll say that it's called Georgia championship wrestling and the AWA, those would probably be exceptions to the rule. The majority of those old time wrestling organizations, they didn't keep tapes. They, they shot their TV a lot of times in a television studio. Then they would take one tape and they would bicycle that tape around the territory. What I mean by that is they would take that one tape and they would take it to, uh, the next television station. And, and that would play, this is a tape that's going to play this week. And then they'd take it to the next one. This will play next week and so on and so forth. Then they would go back and they would pick those tapes up and tape over them and do the same thing, bicycle those tapes all, all across. So if you're in Tennessee, you do TV on Saturday and what airs on TV and Saturday in Memphis is what's going to direct you to Monday night show in the mid South Coliseum. However, that tape then gets bicycled to Nashville, to Louisville, to all the markets, Chattanooga, whatever it is, all the markets that they run and the folks in those markets will see that tape the next Saturday the next week when their television runs, and then you'll get the same matches in your town one week later. And 
that was cycling and bicycling the tapes. But all those tapes would be picked up and recorded over. So when someone has rare footage of or a rare master, there were so few back in the day, Mid-South started uh, keeping their tapes. They were one of the more current promotions that actually kept some of their tapes. We had always kept um, not all of our masters, which is just a shame when you sit back and think about it, but we kept our shows and we would edit what we called Best of Texas Wrestling in Houston. So that was a syndicated show that would go to Saudi Arabia and that would go to India and places like that. Um, we had masters of those, but not masters of the entire taping and things like that. They just didn't exist. So for those who had those kind of libraries, yeah, Vince was interested in getting them and using them is part of what he was hoping one day would be the WWF network. It's crazy to think about too, because, you know, two and a half million bucks becomes the, the price for all the Crockett and WCW and Georgia stuff. And, 3 million bucks is what he's going to pay for the AWA library around this time. And there's talk that Mike Graham here doesn't want to sell the Florida footage and Kevin Von Erich isn't opposed to selling, but, uh, he's got no financial motivation to do so to sell that world-class collection. I was, I guess a little shocked that Bill Watts didn't own the mid South footage. His ex-wife did. Wow. That was news to me yeah uh enna had control over it she got it in the divorce and i don't know that bill had ever put any big value on it he probably did to her said okay hey well this is worth 10 million dollars my god you know what you could get for this um the and the fucked up thing here here was the fucked up deal paul bosch had original Mid-South programming on the Houston wrestling television shows. So when we started with Mid-South in 1983, that was about the time that we started to keep copies of the shows, of the masters that we would do that would air locally in Houston. And what that consisted of was an hour of mid the Mid-South show, that would be the middle, wrapped around by matches that were taped in the Coliseum, because that was our deal. And Houston had many years of Mid-South programming in the Houston office. When Vince is looking for all this stuff, and Mid-South was giving him a hard time, so just go by Houston. Because Houston has it for these years. It has it for the meaty years that you want. And it will decrease the price for whatever Mid-South is looking for Anna because she had ridiculously um, high inflated uh, value of what she thought that those tapes were worth. And I said, well, just go, go buy them from Houston. They've got them. And they don't know. So that's, that's how all that went down. It's pretty amazing that, you know, Vince had the vision to go invest millions of dollars. Now, you know, 
company's worth billions. So it worked out. Something else that's going to work out. Wade Keller would report that Bret Hart is going to meet with Vince McMahon uh, after the April 19th Raw that was in Calgary. And they're getting together to discuss the DVD project that uh, we're eventually going to get. Um, this was a long time coming. You know, this DVD and his career winds up being released in 05. And a lot of people thought that this would never happen. Uh, but a source was telling Wade Keller here, they'll definitely do something, but it won't be wrestling, uh, with the idea being that, you know, if, if Bret Hart's going to be in an angle, it's going to result in him getting the better of Vince McMahon or Shawn Michaels to sort of avenge the Montreal Screwjob incident. And Bret's currently, you know, negotiating with Lloyd's of London to try to get a payout from WCW still. So there's lots of reasons why people say, ah, oh, this won't happen. Of course we know they, they are going to wind up working a match together and, and they are going to find a workaround, but just the idea that Vince and Brett getting together, I mean, it doesn't feel like that was ever going to happen. Not to me. Were you shocked or at this point, do you just assume Vince can repair any relationship? Well, I believe he can. Uh, <laughs> I really do. He's got some incredible healing powers for one reason or another. But Vince and Brett met initially in in Boca Raton um, in December, I think of the previous year. It might have been. It might it might have happened after this. I don't know. I do know there was a meeting. The first time meeting took place in Florida. And I was actually, I was in Boca. I did not go to the meeting and I wanted to just say, just to say hello to Brett. Um, but they, they met and, you know, I was like, why, why wouldn't we do business together? And as, as they went through everything, they finally got to a point, let's start with this DVD project and then something else comes after that and obviously it was you know Stu and Brett and everybody going into the Hall of Fame eventually but fences were mended you know the guy shook hands and hugged and it was time to move on so it was a good thing I can't wait to talk about this April 27th Smackdown we see the debut of Mordecai Mordecai you're saying that in a Vince Russo voice and Russo's not here. No, that's actually a Dan Madigan voice. <laughs> well, chat me up about Dan Madigan and his Mordecai. This is Kevin Thorne, who we know is going to eventually do a silly vampire gimmick too, but a white hood, white pants, white top. He's supposed to be the, the, uh, polar opposite, pardon the pun of the undertaker. Is that the idea? Well, that was a working idea of trying to create opponents for the undertaker. And we, we always make fun of Dan Madigan because he was from Boston. He actually was mayor Quimby and he would talk about Mordecai and he did the vignettes with Mordecai and so on and so forth. But it was Kevin Thorne was a hell of a talent. He was a hell of a worker, had good size, and he could move. I think the gimmick just killed him because he tried to work the gimmick instead of being Kevin Thorne in the ring and just let the gimmick carry itself, if that makes any sense at all. 
he went in slow motion and was too worried about doing gimmicky things than having a good match and, and making things logical. Yeah. We were experimenting. Another one of those failed experiments. Let's talk about a few more of those. This is fun. Uh, Melsford, right? As it turns out, the Eugene character is going to be trade in a manner suggested here a few weeks ago. This has nothing to do with what was written here as it was suggested by many people beforehand, but the original gimmick of a modern day rain man crossed with mighty Igor, uh, looks from TV to be a guy whose rain man strengths make him pick up technical submission wrestling at an incredible speed. The character looks to be that of a simple man who actually is a great wrestler. And after a great television vignette where William Regal was attempting to teach him and then stretch him, he wound up stretching the teacher, the evolution of the Eugene character. Talk to us a little bit about that. Well, it was something, uh, for Nick Dinsmore and Nick Dinsmore came from the Ohio Valley, uh, wrestling. He was a product of that environment and from that training system, a tremendous, tremendous wrestler that Vince felt, you know, he came across very childlike in a lot of ways and created this idea and this gimmick for him. And it was named after a young man in Pittsburgh, Eugene, who had been around the wrestlers that all the guys loved. And his father was a shoemaker and, um, Eugene was a, a very special young man, and it's like you would walk in and have the absolute worst day in the world, and Eugene would be backstage with his dad, and he kind of he would go, "Hello, bros," and you couldn't help but smile, and just and just hug this kid, and all he wanted to do was was be around wrestling. He loved it, and he was a savant. He could tell you everything that was happening everywhere. One of those, you know, April 14, 1964, and give you the match and give you the finish and the referee and how many people were there, um, but different and and wonderful. <laughs> but Eugene was just this this really this really warm kid that Vince loved so much, and he says he goes. He fell in love with Nick and thought, oh, my God, can I have an actual real? We could make a real Eugene. And that's how Nick Dinsmore became Eugene. And, and he wanted him to be this pretty much what you said, this this powerful savant that wants to wrestle but doesn't know how to wrestle. And then all of a sudden gets in the ring and holy shit, he picks it up quick. Let's talk about um, Kenzo Suzuki. Do we have to? Yes, because uh, apparently you guys named him Hirohito, which uh, I guess was a Japanese emperor. And, and the idea is he's supposed to be like a Japanese patriot who is uh, not a fan of American politics or culture. And apparently after word got out in Japan, after the first vignette aired, the fear among those who heard about it was that it was going to give the company a very negative image in the country. It's like you guys were trying to relive world war two because Hirohito was Japan's emperor during the war. And while 
Japan was a U.S. enemy at the time, Hirohito is still beloved in Japanese society. And now you guys are, are sort of using a beloved Japanese cultural symbol as a hardcore American hating heel. And according to the observer, he was scheduled for a huge push at first, apparently to be the top heel on raw, um, aside from evolution, of course. And now we've got to do some adjustments. Talk to me a little bit about Hirohito because it feels like we got vignettes and then they just stop. And, uh, now we're going to just roll him out as Kenzo. Check me out. Kenzo Suzuki. Good God. Kenzo. Kenzo. I brought Kenzo in. Um, big guy, huge upside. And the Hirohito shit. See, I remember it completely different than that. It was, I think Hirohito was viewed by some people almost Hitler-esque in Japan, which we didn't know. We thought what you said that this is a fucking hero there. And, uh, no, it wasn't. It was someone that was taken very negatively. And when they made the, the Hitler esque reference, that was enough for us. Like, Nope. Okay. Uh, let's, let's move on. Let's come up with something else. So Kenzo Suzuki was born. I, I believe that was close to his real name. Um, he had, his wife wanted to be in the business and she spoke English. She spoke perfect English. So the idea was to package them with her being the mouthpiece for Kenzo and slide him right into a program with, uh, you know, the all American John Cena, who was United States champion. And he was kind of battling that front of folks that, international stars that wanted to come in and overtake America, if you will, little old fashioned, but sometimes old fashioned works. And he was not as good as the spot that he was placed in. How long does it take before you guys realize that? Well, we didn't let him work for a long time. So until a few months, actually, because we protected him so well. We, we kept him, we tried to keep him down on the farm as much as we could and just do angles and, and try and do some short things with him where you couldn't see through him at first. But unfortunately he just didn't, he didn't continue to grow. He didn't get any better. Who's down on him is, I mean, is it Vince that's down on him as an agent? Is it everybody? I would say it started with the agents because Vince was high on him and I was high on him. So it was, we're, we're trying to make it work because we kind of, we had to, we, we needed heels. We needed new talent. And this was that era of, you know what? We're going to give guys a chance. We're going to give them little runs and see who, see who can sprint and who can't. I'm not so saying, I want to be clear. I'm not saying now. But back in this day, back in 04, uh, how, how often was it for the agents to sort of change Vince's mind? I mean, if Vince comes out and he's hot and heavy on something, and, Hey, this is what we're going to do. And then maybe a guy like Arn Anderson, you know, fills out a house show report or however you guys do it, uh, or did it rather, does that come in? And it's just, 
uh, hey, he is not improving. Is that enough or, uh, for Vince to, to change his mind or are there meetings about it? Or does Vince say, Hey, let me see the tape or, uh, it's a, it's a time, it's, it's a time factor. And a lot of times he's going to listen to the feedback of the people that are out on the road sure. with the talent every night. So if you tell me he's not getting it, he's not getting it, then we're going to have a, a pretty good conversation with him and let him know that he needs to get it, or we're going to have to make changes. So it's, if he's not getting it, then help him get it because we weren't in the position at that time to say, okay, he's not getting it next. There wasn't any next in the wings. Right. And instead of just saying he ain't getting it next, work with him, figure it out. Let What does he need? If it's less ring time, then we'll do less ring time. If it's, if it's more ring time, less talk, let's do that. I let's figure this out versus just cut bait and send him back to wherever the hell he came from. And that's what we did. We tried. Let's take, let's keep it moving here and talk about backlash. Uh, Backlash is, um, a bit of a disappointment. It does 270,000 buys or a 0.50 buy rate. The main event, as we've covered was Benoit triple H and Shawn Michaels in a triple threat. And of course the big show or the big match that I remember is Mick Foley and Randy Orton. And everybody is, is saying, you know, this is a, you know, WrestleMania level show as far as the work rate and, and match of the year level performances, but the, the, the buys are down and they're way down. Um, even from, from the prior year, you know, so in Oh three, that backlash where it was bill Goldberg and the rock did 350,000 buys. So we're down pretty significantly, but if you go back even further to Oh two, you know, there we saw Hulk Hogan and triple H do 400,000 buys. So year after year, you're seeing backlash and your pay-per-view numbers start to dip. Now it's a trend. You know, when it happens as a one-off, you can say, oh, it's a one-off. It's an anomaly. You know, it won't be like that next year, but when 03 is down from 02 and now 04 is down from 03, are you guys starting to feel like, oh shit, man, we got to pull the nose up. Well, you definitely always have to pull the nose up when business is down. This, but again, we, we knew <laughs> this was a conscious effort. We knew that we were going to take a dip in business. We, we absolutely knew it and we planned for it and looked at it as we have to make this investment in talent and in stories now, or we're never going to get out of it because a lot of the old guard was gone and you had to do something. Not all of it's going to be right. Not all of it's going to click. And you've got all these eyeballs on you. you you've got to do something and you have to continually uh, develop and redevelop and create new all the time. And that was, that was the challenge at that point where it's uh, you would get demoralized in a lot of ways when you look at the numbers and you look at business and go fuck and Vince looked at it and goes guys there's only one way to go you know and that's up but we have to build this foundation we have to get back to what it is that we do get some of these talent over and then we can start growing again so 
we knew it. We knew it going in. And that's one thing, you know, people poo poo, but it's, it's, I will never forget those discussions because it was frustrating. I, I don't want to take a step back. Sometimes you got to take two steps back to take one forward. And when you have a firm foundation, then you can grow a lot better. And it takes time to do that. Let's talk about Kurt Angle. Uh, Kurt Angle is a guy who has had tremendous success. He's been with the company at this point. I don't know, I guess five or six years. Uh, he's only 35, but it looks like, you know, he may be starting to wind it down here because he's got, uh, obviously a neck issue that's been, um, you know, predating even the Olympics in 96. And so a year prior to this, he has a experimental I guess it were at the time, neck surgery with young blood out of San Antonio. Um, and this is the guy I think most wrestling fans have heard, you know, he sort of became the WWE go-to. So for Steve Austin or edge or Rhino or Benoit or Lita or Bob Holly, if you have a neck issue, you went to see young blood and angle signed a, a five-year deal in Oh two. And he says that he's happy with the deal and he's going to finish the deal, but it looks like he's starting to wind it down because he's just, you know, not, not feeling the way he used to. And he's on the heels of a, of a big time match at WrestleMania 20 with Eddie Guerrero, but he had to be like positioned at this point to be one of your tippy top stars. And when you hear, man, this next surgery that we thought was going to be the, the magic pill, the, the cure all. It's just not, um, how's the office perceive that? What's the relationship like with them and Kurt? I mean, it doesn't feel like this is an easy solution. And of course we know that Kurt's going to continue to wrestle, but he's going to do through, do so through tremendous pain. Well, Kurt won the Olympics with a break with a broken freaking neck. So you, you knew you had a world-class athlete there. However, uh, world-class athletes break down if they don't take care of themselves That's and right. Kurt was breaking down. That's just what was happening. He was breaking down before our eyes. So we had to give him some kind of rest and let him have the time to actually heal and get better. If you were to ask Kurt, you know, Kurt would tell you every night, no, I'm good. I can go. And then the doctor would shake his head. No, he's not. He can't. And you've got to listen to the medical professionals at that point and say, no, Kurt, protect him from himself. So that's what was happening with Kurt, man. He just had a lot of nagging injuries and things going on with his body that the thought of him being able to go out every night and have matches the way that he used to have them, that was not, that wasn't going to be the new reality. Just wasn't going to happen. How does that, I mean, does that affect any, any plans with Vince? How does he react to it, this news that, oh no, not another one. I mean, it, I, I know I hate to talk about it like this, but Austin's out. Goldberg's out. Rock is out. You've been priming this guy now. Fuck. Kurt Angle might be out too. Yeah. It hurts. I mean, it just hurts. So you got to figure out something else for him to do, which is where we came up with the, the general manager role to keep him on TV and keep his personality out there so that when he is ready to go, it's just easy to slide him in. Right. Uh, we didn't want to just give up on the character and say, okay, well he's done and move on. So we just tried to find ways to keep him in front of the audience. 
let's keep it moving here and let's talk about, um, the decision to keep him in front of the audience, but he's not going to be able to wrestle. So we're going to do, you know, we're going to make him the GM. Um, the way you do that is on April 15th, you have big show throw angle off of some staging and scaffolding, which is said to be about 40 feet high. And a couple of weeks later, when he comes back, he's wheeled to the ring in a wheelchair. And he's explaining that the doctors have told him he could never wrestle again because of a severe injury. And he blames the fans because they have this, you know, craving to see violence. And he blames Tori for laughing at him and he brings her to the ring and asked her if it was funny that he can't have sex with his wife anymore. And so the, you're, you're trying what you can to still make him an on-screen character. And he's obviously going to excel at that. Is this the most frustrating time of his career? Because I mean, he's got to feel like, man, this is, I mean, this is okay, but this isn't what I want to do. I think Kurt was extremely frustrated. Kurt wanted to be in the ring performing. That's what he loved to do. But he also grew to love a lot of these backstage vignettes that we were doing and being able to find a different dimension to that character. And for the first time in a long time, give his body some rest. So Kurt embraced it. Let's uh, talk about how uh, Nielsen is going to change the way ratings are done around this time. Obviously, you know, ratings have been a big topic in wrestling going back to the Monday night war and something we've talked about extensively here, but they're going to be switching formats, um, from a, a diary market to what's called local people meters, which is fun to say real fast. Um, the big markets are going to get it first, of course, New York and Los Angeles, but this switch is significant. Now I've, we have sort of made fun of the old diary system on this show before explain to everybody the way a diary system works and how antiquated that really is. Certain families are picked around the country and they're giving a book to fill out in pen, what they watch each week and how long they spend watching their TV, what television shows that they enjoy. And then they send it in to Nielsen and Nielsen comprises those numbers. And that's how ratings were, were done. And it is one of the stupidest systems I've, I've ever heard of in my life. Nielsen, Nielsen is a joke. I mean, I look, I just, I think it's a joke because they have the technology to know what every single person, every time you turn on your tel- television, if you're watching direct TV, Comcast cable, Hulu, YouTube, uh, your Apple TV, all of that. The technology is here today to understand and know what every single person in America that has a television set purchased after 2010, uh, what the hell they're watching exactly to the minute. But we use this system that is the Holy grail of ratings because they were the only ones in the game. They never had to explain themselves. And when they explain themselves, it's like listening to Chinese geometry. If you're from Hungary 
and it's it's just maddening. And now they're like, okay, we're going to do this now. And it was a new system that no one had any faith in because there's, it's hard to have faith in a system when you're changing from one system that means nothing to another system that means nothing. But yet that's what the advertisers and everybody were hanging their hats on. I guess we should mention too, you know, as you were explaining the diary, how easy that was to mess up, you know, so let's say in my, in my local Huntsville market, CBS is on WH and T channel 19. So channel 19 is the station it's on and, and what the station markets itself as, but WH and T are their actual call letters, but the programming they air is on CBS. So if that's a little confusing to you, imagine just regular America who's not sophisticated enough to listen to this podcast or understand the technical breakdowns we do on this show. And now we're going to give them a pamphlet with a dollar. If you're a white dude and, and say, Hey, fill out these 17 pages of what you watch and when. So in that scenario, let's say you were watching programming. We were just talking about, and let's say you were going to watch, I don't know, something on CBS. There's, you know, whatever the new show is on CBS and you write that show in there and you put CBS and you put channel 19, but you put WAFF, which is our local NBC affiliate, then NBC got the credit, not CBS. So, th- so that level of silliness existed with Nielsen. So sometimes these ratings weren't worth anything. And so now they're going to do what's called a, a people meter, uh, where we're actually monitoring for real what they're watching. Uh, where people would put these meters on their TV. So they don't have to fill out a diary anymore, but certain people would hook this apparatus up to their TV and ta-da, now we know for real. Now under this, the reason we're covering this is because uh, on March 24th, Nielsen is, is testing out the new people meter market and it shows that SmackDown under this new system would have a 42% lower rating than under the standards that were used before. Uh, the Simpsons were down 29%. Primetime was down. I mean, lo- lots of shows that had historically been perceived as being more watched and, and capturing greater ad revenue because of the perceived ratings are now changing. And so, like I know in the Nashville market, when they first got, you know, people meter markets for radio, there were radio stations that weren't in the top 20. But then once they started to have people actually carry these monitors with them, so whenever they heard music, this would register what station it was, it changed everything. This people meter market thing is not something a lot of people have talked about, but within the television industry and and eventually radio, it changed the way a lot of people reported their financials. Am I right? Yeah, it did. But it also was as inaccurate as the old way. Because again, you're still relying on a handful of people, a right. very small handful of people. Correct. And you're not actually recording actual data. You're still taking what this hand picked, hand selected. So if you've got uh, a million people in Houston, Texas, for example, you'll have maybe six Nielsen families. So out of a million people, those million people are recommend are represented by six families. So what they watch now is going to determine how your rating is in everywhere. 
it, it just it, it had no um, no rhyme or reason even even to do I met with the company one time and met with Nielsen where Nielsen themselves even admitted in our conversation that their ratings were bogus but they were the best that they could do and the company that I was representing at the time and meeting with was a company that was it was a call company that said okay can we just expand this let's expand it if you've got six families in this area all right what demographics are being represented and is there a way that we can multiply that by let's say 100 maybe a thousand and how they would do that would be by manning systems and calling people and actually getting the real data from them and and be able to speak with them and compile that data that's not nah, it's too much work this is a pretty good sampling we don't really we don't want to know that much wow but we've, we've got a good sampling and my jaw just hung down because i thought Nielsen is all about ratings. They would want, you know, if you had the ability to truly tell me who's watching what, when, and where, and how now, wouldn't you want to do that? And that ability exists and it has existed for a long time. Let's talk about the ratings uh, for SmackDown in the month of May. Uh, May 6th gets 2.8. May 13th gets a 3.1. Uh, the SmackDown after judgment day gets a 2.9 uh, on May 27th. It gets a 2.9. So ratings are not where, you know, the company would like, you know, they, they don't want twos. They want threes or better. And Wade Keller writes, some insiders point to Bruce Pritchard as the primary reason for SmackDown's recent string of subpar shows. They say Pritchard has manipulated his way into more power by bad-mouthing co-writer Dave Lagana behind his back to Vince McMahon. The Undertaker uh, has, of course, helped Pritchard's cause, as Pritchard has long been considered one of Taker's main inner office allies. I, I don't know. I find this funny because when I read this now, and I have to admit, when I read this 15 years ago, I would not have viewed this this way. But when I read this now, I'm like, okay, so Dave Lagana called Wade Keller and told him this. <laughs> I mean, I'm not bad mouthing Lagana. I'm just saying for, for, for this to be an opinion, oh, he's manipulated his way into more power by bad mouthing Dave Lagana behind his back to Vince McMahon. Who would have said that to Wade Keller, if not Dave Lagana, right? And that's why Dave Lagana was still working as writer on SmackDown. Cause I bad mouthed him so bad. Well, yeah. brick by brick. Yes. So chat me up. Um, what, how do you respond to the criticism here? Of you want me to respond to somebody who has never worked one day in the wrestling business in their life, who sits behind a keyboard and just writes shit that people tell him. I mean, that that's absolutely just ridiculous. It's, it's silly. It makes me laugh when people say this stupid shit because they have zero idea and so little regard for the truth that it doesn't deserve a response. Okay. Well, let's keep it moving here. Let's talk about, um, Vince McMahon selling stock and the way he goes about doing it here, according to, 
the observer is fascinating to me. The company is doing a roadshow for investors where they will be revealing long-term company goals and following the roadshow, Vince McMahon will sell 7.1 million of his personal shares of the company currently valued at an excess of $100 million. That stock is not available yet. And McMahon will probably wait until after the dividend comes out where he'll be getting $3.2 million on July 8th before putting the stock up. And after the sale of his stock, his quarterly dividend would be 2.8 per quarter or 11.3 million annually. Plus he'll, uh, he will have taken in around a hundred million dollars more in the sale. So he's socking huge money away this year. And when the sales are completed, Vince's ownership of WWE will drop from 80% to 67%. And it should also quiet any rumors that the company is thinking of or wanting to go back private. Those very close to the top when these rumors have come out have denied them, saying that Vince and Linda feel like being on the New York Stock Exchange gives their company a real world credibility as a major company that no other pro wrestling company has ever had. Not to mention it made Vince McMahon hovering on the level of being a billionaire. From a company standpoint, because they have so much cash and cash equivalents in the hundreds of millions of dollars both in the bank and low interest investments. There's always the thought of going into another business at the same time, the the sting of such flops as the WBF and XFL haven't gone away. And the feeling is to stay within the wrestling world. They know so much of an aggressive approach as purchasing all the old tapes and ideas of how to monetize that library. So I find this fascinating, especially with, you know, the new news of, uh, Vince McMahon making huge personal investments into a new XFL, but the idea that he's going to do like a, a dog and pony show for investors and then sell the stock after that's genius. You know, your numbers may be down a little bit. So let's go out here, show everybody the long-term plans, get them excited about the future, not down on the present, but excited for the future. And then let's cash out, baby. A hundred million bucks. Great strategy from Vince here. They didn't cash out. He made more, he made more stock available to the public for them to sell. That was the purpose of the roadshow. So they're like, okay, if this is so great that we need more stock to sell. And by Vince releasing the stock that he had, yes, he gets paid for that, but it also releases more stock out into the public market so that people can purchase stock. That's business. Do it every day. All right. Now I'm ready to get you fired up. Are you ready to get fired up? Sure. They shot a major TV angle at a house show on May 2nd in El Paso during the angle for the Guerrero Layfield main event, uh, where they had Eddie Guerrero's mother suffer a heart attack due to an attack by Layfield. After Guerrero got the pin in the match, he went around soaking up the cheers and he talked about how proud he was to return to El Paso as champion, cut a promo and brought his family into the ring. And he first introduced his wife and two daughters. And then he gave his wife flowers and he talked about being so close to mother's day. So he brought his mother into the ring and gave her flowers. And then Layfield came back out while this was going on and nailed Guerrero with a clothesline. Then he grabbed Eddie's mother and what was described as a Vulcan pinch to the neck, basically trying to give the illusion of hurting her without actually doing anything. And the family was freaking out while Eddie couldn't do anything to save his mother. Finally, officials came from backstage to break it up and Layfield posed with the belt. 
and Guerrero's mother went out on a stretcher and an oxygen mask while Guerrero recovered and did a great job, apparently making all of this seem legit. I think everyone realized how dead Guerrero JBL was as a pay-per-view main event. So they are going to desperate storyline lengths to make it, to give this a shot of adrenaline from what we understand. They were thrilled with the Guerrero's daughters and how they pulled off their roles. And apparently Eddie's mother's blood pressure legitimately went up as she was in the ring because of all the excitement and pressure of the angle. Although nobody knew it until afterwards and she ended up fine. You've, yeah. told, you've told this story before. That's not the way you tell it, though. Well, no, because of course, who 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 reported that? Was that <laughs> was that F F F W? What is it? F W K or F D M? It's F D M. Okay, figures. Well, first of all, JBL was never going to grab. Eddie's mom in any way of trying to make it like he hurt her. All he did was, was going to grab her and say, Hey, look at your son, but not in a mean physical way. She was a 73 year old woman. Um, she was going to go down and what took place is she went down and the excitement of it got to her and there was fear of her having a heart attack. And, and actually as all this shit was going out, she couldn't get her breath. She couldn't get anything. And the doctor's like, she's having a fucking heart attack. While while we're at the ring, I'm like, going, hey, good acting, doc. But he wasn't acting. She wasn't acting. And Eddie Guerrero sure as fuck wasn't acting. Um, it was a serious moment that we didn't know what the hell was going on. And we got her to the back. And we got the ambulance and everything there to get her checked out. Um, it was a scary situation. It was a, it was a real scary deal for just something to do on mother's day in Eddie's hometown. And, uh, it was a strong angle. It was something that I thought about when I looked, sat there and looked and Hey, mother's day, we're in El Paso. It's Eddie's hometown. Hmm. Could have some fun here. And that's what we did. Uh, right or wrong. Uh, it was what it was. And unfortunately, and fortunately, uh, Eddie's mom, you know, got a little worked up and there was a health scare there legit, but she was okay. She ended up being okay at the end of the day. And, you know, everybody got out. We got a great angle and got a real story. And I got threatened by Eddie Guerrero several times and everybody lived on to have a happy life. Let's talk about uh, IGN Film Force. They're going to report around this time that Triple H is at the top of the list to replace Arnold Schwarzenegger as the title character and the long in development King Conan Crown of Iron. Uh, I don't know. This sort of took me aback. I didn't know that this was uh, ever even discussed, but apparently it was. And the idea here is, uh, I guess, um, Triple H was previously rumored to be Conan's estranged son, but now maybe he was going to be Conan, the barbarian that didn't wind up being the case. Uh, when did you first hear that triple H may have a shot at this? And was this him trying to, you know, was this a WWE push to sort of recreate the success that the rock had had? I mean, here in 04, the rock wasn't who he is now, but he was still well on his way. What can you tell us about triple H as Conan? 
God, those roles come through all the time. People saying, hey, this guy would be great for that. This guy would be great for that. That's all this was. Was Arnold was talking about doing a remake of Conan, and Triple H was one of the names that was put in the ringer, and it got to the point of, you know, hey, this could happen, and it's a possibility that he could play in the next Conan. That's It's nothing more than that. Realistically. It happens, it happens every single day. How how different would the wrestling world be had he ventured into movies, did Conan, it becomes a huge hit, and he follows The Rock's footsteps, and I mean, wrestling could look a lot different now, couldn't it? Possibly could. Let's get to uh, Judgment Day 04. Uh, the show drew a legitimate sellout. Announced at 18,722 fans. Meltzer would say the paid attendance was around 13.5. The gate is really big, $813,000, which is the second largest live gate in the history of California wrestling. Of course, the current record, which is, is going to be destroyed when WrestleMania comes to the Staples Center next year, is 907 grand for SummerSlam back in 2001. The main event there was Steve Austin versus Kurt Angle and The Rock versus Booker T. Uh, so you're at, you know, an all time high there. And, and you got to be, you know, we've talked about how oh, the business is down here in 04. But when you come in and you're setting records like this, that's pretty encouraging, is it not? Was LA always a strong market for you guys? No, not always. LA, kind of like the business, would be cyclical. And during this time, thank God, it was a good market and it did well for us here. The, uh, the dark match, or it's not a dark match. It's on heat. Mark Jindrak and Funaki, uh, Meltzer would say Teddy long is totally wasted trying to make lemonade out of Jindrak. He went on a rate, a rant about how everyone in LA is phony, taking drugs and using the Hollywood diet. And then he's making a motion like he's throwing up in a toilet bowl and how everybody's using plastic surgery to change their look. But you know, they're trying to push Jindrak as this stud star doesn't wind up working out in the end though why, why was Jin Jack a, a miss in wwe i don't think that mark ever really loved the business and or wanted to be in the business i think he landed in the business uh in the power plant wcw so Jindrak's one of those guys that came over when wcw was purchased had what appeared to be a good upside just never clicked and never, you know, never turned on in his brain to get to that next point in the business. Our first match on the show, and and, and you watched this for the first time in a long time, is Rob Van. I watched Dam it on the on the anniversary. I actually watched it on May sixteenth, two thousand nineteen. Fifteen years to the day uh, after it first happened. Cool. Rob Van Dam and Ray Mysterio beat the Dudleys 15 minutes, 19 seconds, three stars on the observer. I mean, really a hall of fame crew here. Uh, I enjoyed this match, you know, Rob Van Dam and Ray Mysterio is not a tag team. I ever thought I wanted to see, but I thought this was pretty good. what did you think? It was really good. And, you know, I, I even go back and, you know, talk about the open of the show, which was fucking fabulous, but I got goosebumps. You know how you get the goosebumps that will stay with you for a while? Yep. When there's a shot of Eddie Guerrero in the middle of that where 
the commentator says, is there life after death? And I just got goosebumps and sat there that just held through the finish of the, of the cold open. And that was just, again, some of that shit, man was so good. And that's the work of, of chambers and those guys just whew, put some great shit together. And then you, you start off with Ray and, uh, Rob Van Dam against the Dudleys. All four had great chemistry. The Dudleys and Van Dam back from their ECW days, they'd worked together so many times and it was a good, solid, great opener for the pay-per-view. Without question. Uh, there is one funny little thing that happens in the middle of the match. The sound guy just randomly plays Rob Van Dam's music, which I guess spoils the finish. When you watch this back, did you laugh out loud? Oh God, man, that shit happens. <laughs> That's so great. Uh, next up, we got Booker T doing a promo and there's these strange voices coming out of the room and he's got all these candles lit, but, um, Kurt angle and Luther Reigns come out angle is going to blame Tory Wilson for his career being over. And, um, so he says, you know, he's going to cost Wilson her career. And he announces that if, if Tori doesn't win the next match, she's fired. So it's Tori Wilson and Don Marie. They're going to go six minutes and 14 seconds, which Meltzer says was too long and, uh, they're doing their best, but you know, they're, they're probably, I don't know, not pay-per-view worthy based on wrestling, but that's not why they're here. They're here to have Tori Wilson rip Don Marie's tights off and she's got on a, a skimpy little flesh colored thong. Uh, and she's pinned pretty quickly after a backslide quarter star. This is just to get, uh, some scantily clad women on the pay-per-view here. Is it not? Well, I would never argue about ever having, uh, Don Marie or Tori Wilson scantily clad anywhere, but man, going back, you know, the, even the Booker T interview was just classic stuff and make just made me reminisce of how much fun it always was to work with Booker because you could give Booker anything and he would make it better. And that's what Booker did with this whole program with the undertaker, with the voodoo shit. It, it was great. And then of course, Luther Reigns pushing the box to the ring. And if you come out of a box, motherfucker, you are over. So Kurt angle, not just came out of a box. He rose <laughs> out of a box, <laughs> which really made that son of a bitch over. Thank you for that. Just saying. Uh, what's your favorite Don Marie yeah. match? Probably this one. Yeah. This one, you know, just saying. Yeah, I was going. I'm just, I mean, but you know, it, it, but this was going back to Kurt Angle and, and, and rising out of the box. And, and here was a bald Kurt Angle. And it, and it just makes me think about if, if only. They had hymns when he started to lose his hair because you know, everybody's heard us talking about hymns and how they're helping guys look their best. It's, it's a one-stop shop for hair loss, skin care, and sexual awareness for men. And if Kurt Angle could have just been able to have access to hymns back in the day, then Kurt may not have had to shave his hair because if you catch your hair loss before you lose it all, Four hymns can help you out. Thanks to science, baldness can be optional, man. It's, you don't have to go to the doctor, those awkward in-person visits or long pharmacy lines. Four hymns connects you to real doctors online. 
It's completely confidential and discreet. Just answer a few quick questions and the doctor will review. Then they determine it's right for you they can prescribe you medication to treat hair loss shipped directly to your door order now hey and our listeners can get started with the hymns complete hair kit for just five dollars today while supplies last and subject to doctor's approval restrictions apply see website for details this could cost hundreds when you go to the doctor or pharmacy somewhere else but all you got to do is go to 4 slash W-W-E. That's F-O-R-H-I-M-S dot com slash W-W-E. 4 slash W-W-E. And then Kurt probably could have saved coming out of that box of the bald head. Well, I don't know there's any way to save this next match. It's Mordecai and Scotty Too Hotty. Now they're going to go three minutes and one second, of course. Mordecai's debuting here and gets a win by pinfall. Uh, Meltzer would say he had a undertaker slash cane like ring entrance and a strong opening presentation quote. Once the bell rang, the crowd was dead. They're trying to make him both slow moving, but intense and it didn't work and it didn't get over. His finisher is the Scott hall outsiders edge dud. Uh, when you watch this presentation back of, you know, Mordecai making his big entrance into the ring and then the actual match itself when he's trying to do a lot of character work. Saw it for the first time in a long time. What'd you think? Yeah. Let me say this about that. First of all, uh, no, Dave, we weren't trying to make him slow moving and intense. Uh, we were trying to make him intense and that was Mordecai's vision was that he would be slow moving, which is what killed it. it. It just didn't work. He needed to be, he needed to go once the bell rang and, um, my notes, which you'd love is, um, well, best match he ever had. So you can Mordecai and that pretty much sums it up right there because he had so much upside, so much promise, so much potential. And this was his debut match and the best one he was ever going to have. Yeah, poor Kevin. Uh, next up, Jacqueline is going to give Chavo Guerrero a present of bra and panties to wear. Of course, he throws them down. His father picks them up and looks interested in trying them on, though. Meltzer would say that's the curse of being 55 years old and still getting a check from WWE as a performer because it means you're going to wind up humiliated many times over. You know, fuck Dave Meltzer. And here's another opportunity where you look at something and, and I know everybody will sit here and go, Oh my God, I gush over the girls. I do gush over the Guerreros because I think that they were just that damn good. And Chavo Guerrero senior stole the show in this regard because his subtle acting and Everything that Meltzer is is accusing they of making him do, those are Chavo Sr.'s ideas that took him over the top, that gave him that extra dimension of personality that was entertaining, that people could identify with. So um, that's the kind of shit just pisses me off. And Chavo Guerrero made it. I loved the scene backstage and, and Chavo's underplaying it and Chavito catching him was just pure classic. 
Let's talk about the next match. Rico and Charlie Haas are going to retain the tag titles over Bob Holly and Billy Gunn in 10 minutes and 26 seconds. Meltzer would say they tried this match out the night before in San Bernardino and the crowd cheered Holly and Gunn. So they had them come out and from the start, they play that neither Holly nor Gunn wanted to be in with Rico and the announcers never acknowledged that Rico used to manage Gunn or that any of that ever happened. I think they want to erase that part of their history. Rico kept grabbing their asses and one person in the company told me they could nickname Holly and Gunn the hardcore asses. The match was all homosexual comedy. Haas, for whatever reason, looked the worst he has since his OVW days and his punches never got, never his strong point became the focal point of his offense. And it was so bad that Jackie Gator at ringside was pounding on the mat to get a clapping deal going and the crowd just slept through it. Finish saw Holly have Haas up for the Alabama slam, but Rico super kicked him and Haas scored a roll up three quarter stars. Th- this feels thrown together. Uh, I didn't enjoy the pairing of either one of these tag teams as a fan. And it was just sort of there for me. How about you? It was a fun match, but it wasn't a good match. Just was kind of in that spot to be a ha ha filler. Uh, not a lot of chemistry with those guys. Trying something with, with Charlie Haas and at least you had Jackie out there to, to kind of spice things up a little bit, but not a whole lot there. I mean, the, the audience didn't care. The talent didn't care and you could feel that. So it was not something I'd want to see again. Next up, we got Chavo Guerrero. He's going to pin Jacqueline to win the cruiserweight title. You heard me right. In four minutes and 47 seconds. The gimmick here is that Chavo was wrestling the match with one hand tied behind his back. And he actually does a few one-armed uh, backbreakers. And Chavo Classic eventually unties his son while the referee is dazed. And the finish sees Classic distract the ref while Chavo uses a gory special bomb on her. And uh, he wins the title back. So he got a dud rating in the Observer. Uh, these... Uh, man versus woman intergender matches you've never really enjoyed. Uh, what'd you think of this one? And, and does this sort of devalue, I mean, it sort of presents the cruiserweight belt as really being a ha ha here. Does it not? No, not really. Cause Jacqueline could probably beat 90% of the cruiserweights anyway, still could today. Um, I enjoyed it. It had a story to it and I enjoyed the hell out of it. And as I, in watching this thing and watching what Chavo Guerrero Jr. is doing with one arm tied behind his back is masterful. It's, it's hard enough to work with having both your arms, but Chavo only having one arm and keeping the other one behind his back was masterfully done, and it had a great story to it. And this match was a lot of fun. I loved it. I thought it was was a great story told well by everybody in the in the ring and is what chavo classic on the outside of the ring so everything got done and i don't i do hate uh intergender matches and i like this one because there's a fucking girl in it that's why you like this one he made it work and jacqueline and she made it work next up we've got something that doesn't feel like it ever happened but it did John Cena is going to wrestle Rene Dupree on pay-per-view here for the United States title. Cena is going to get the win and Meltzer would say it's a better match than expected. Um, series of near falls, clean pin, 
Cena gets the win after the FU. Uh, Cena gets three stars here in the Observer. And I guess we should mention Cena is fresh off of a U.S. title win at WrestleMania 20 from the Big Show. Uh, so this is the beginning of the big singles push for John Cena. And we haven't talked a ton about Rene Dupree, but it does feel like what we fans hear is there was a ton of heat. And, uh, if you ask one of the boys, I think most of them would say, oh, that was self-inflicted John Cena and Rene Dupree though. what do you think of the match? And, and what can you tell us about Rene Dupree that we haven't talked about before? Well, first of all, as far as the match one thing that stuck out to me more than anything i mean was just larger than life was the reaction cena got when he came out holy shit uh john cena was at that point a mega star and that crowd hung on every word that he had um it was amazing it was just truly amazing cena was on fire with his raps and shit um couldn't be touched on this night. And as far as the match goes, you know, people forget how young Rene Dupree was at this point. I think he was like maybe 20 years old at this point. And he was able to hang. He looked great. And, you know, unfortunately, for whatever reason, I think that more than anything, it was the immaturity of Rene Dupree at the time, a young kid being thrown into a man's business without really being properly prepared for what to expect. It was a different business than his father, Emile Dupree's maritime promotion. So for Rene to come into this and, and do what he did, I thought he had a huge upside and, and wish it would have worked out a lot better for uh, Rene Dupree. But in this showing, I thought he had a tremendous showing. All right. Next up on the show, we've got uh, Undertaker and Booker T. Undertaker is going to get the win in 11 minutes and 25 seconds. Uh, Meltzer would say Michael Cole had an annoying night, although it probably wasn't entirely his fault. He cons- uh, consistently pushed the idea all night that this was the Undertaker's first match on pay per view since WrestleMania. The only thing is. It's the first match on pay-per-view for every single person on this show since WrestleMania. Also, when giving the alleged figure out, he noted that the Lakers played the night before and that everyone's making a big deal about how it sold out, but they didn't have 18,722 people. Meltzer would say, no, actually they had 18,999 people. And I'm damn sure a lot more were paid on this show than WWE. And they can't possibly present themselves at the same level as the Lakers in Los Angeles. Booker came out with a big bag of magic dust from an unmanned grave or unnamed grave. Uh, and after referee Nick Patrick got bumped, Booker pulled out the dust and threw it in Undertaker's eyes, and Undertaker no sold it. Meltzer would say, Well, that was quite the waste of time, wasn't it? Booker worked on Undertaker's knee, wrapping it around the post, used the axe kick finisher. Booker, I mean, Undertaker kicks out, sits up, gets the high kick, choke slam, tombstone. That's the finish. Star in three quarters. I love these guys uh, individually. I, I've, I've had some of my favorite matches from both of these guys. But this one, for whatever reason, the chemistry just wasn't there for me. But you love both of them. What do you think? I didn't think the chemistry was there for this match either, but fuck, fuck, fuck. That's right. Triple fuck day Meltzer. Um, I just, it, it was off. 
You know what I mean? It just didn't, it, it didn't click for this particular match. And the guys have had matches before and after that were tremendous. And watching this, I kept thinking, wow, maybe one of them's having a bad day. Both of them are having a bad day. Um, just really did not jive. Uh, didn't. Why do you think that is though? I mean, <sighs> some days, man, you can have, so, Hey, some days you and I have just shitty shows. Yeah. Just an off day. Yeah. And I think that that's what this was, was here where it, it's, I, that's why I say probably both of them was just everything felt either one step behind or just one step too fast and didn't really work out for me. I, I watched it and went, eh, not digging it. Cause I thought the story leading up to it was very good. Well, here's our main event while we're really here. Meltzer gives it three and three quarter stars. I think it's better than that. I absolutely love this match. They're going to go 23 minutes and 22 seconds. Uh, this is the biggest match of JBL's career main eventing a pay-per-view and woof in a big way. Uh, JBL gets the win by DQ, believe it or not. So, uh, yeah, Layfield comes out to a surprising lack of a reaction at first. This is directly from the observer, but then cut a strong promo where he guaranteed victory. And this set up the big face pop for Guerrero. Although it was noted by several that the actual ring entrance reaction was stronger for Cena. Would you agree with that? You watched it back. You were there live. Cena get a bigger pop than Eddie here in LA. No, I think I would, I'd say they were equal. Lame. Well, I did. I, I, because I was waiting for that pop and listened to both of them because I was so shocked at the pop that John Cena got. I'd say they were equal. I would say it's just as good for Eddie. These guys pull out all the stops. Guerrero's doing planches. They're uh, doing fall away slams on the floor. They're doing backdrops on the Spanish announce table that doesn't break. Uh, and then Eddie tackles the referee, Brian Hebner. And then Layfield grabs a chair and hits Guerrero with what was described as a sick chair shot to the head. That's an understatement. You need to go watch it. Meltzer would say Guerrero bladed, and that's hardly the word. It was coming out of his forehead like a faucet, reminiscent of Vince McMahon and the Zach Gowan match, or maybe even worse. After what happened to Kurt Angle, you'd think they'd be leery of the kind of chair shot impact directly on the head. I mean, this is unbelievable the amount of blood and gore that we're seeing here, and they're pulling out all the stops. Um, there's a DQ called eventually, uh, and this happens where Guerrero misses the frog splash, but Layfield brought in the belt while Hebner was distracted. And then Guerrero gets it and he uses it in front of Hebner. So there's the DQ and, and the place is not happy. There's a, a big groan and post-match. We've got a ton of belt shots by Guerrero on Layfield and he's going berserk and blood is everywhere. Um, another chair shot. Uh, a, fly, a frog splash. It's a big celebration for Eddie, but whew, what a battle. I don't know that words can, we can't really describe this one. This is one you got to see. Am I right? It is. And it's the match that was the coming out party for John Layfield. This was the match that solidified his heel run and his first singles push 
to where we went, okay, finally this big son of a bitch is going to do it. So for so many reasons, this, this match was memorable. It was a great match. It made John Layfield. And for the sheer brutality of it, it was it was scary. And I hated – I'm one of those old-timers. I used to love – the blood and guts and everything. But then as you, you get older, you kind of become immune to it and watching this and seeing some of the kids faces at ringside, watching Eddie bleed, it was very uncomfortable to watch. And it was too much, way too much, way, 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 way too much. Um, that, that part of it was an accident. And that is, Unfortunately, some of the shit that, that happens from time to time. And I don't know that it created any more drama or that it, uh, enhanced the match nearly as much as I think they thought it did. It just kind of made it gory after a while and you just wanted it to end for Eddie's sake. Wade Keller would write once Guerrero got backstage, he went into shock and was taken to the hospital. He got 16 stitches and two bags of IV fluids to rehydrate him and was released within a few hours. The deep gash was considered nothing more than human error. It was not scripted for him to bleed that heavily. And most within WWE believed that there was too much blood to the point that it took away from the drama. Since rather than getting into Guerrero's comebacks, Viewers were either rightfully queasy and grossed out or simply concerned for Guerrero's health. So you've told the story about being backstage and I know you'll tell it again here now about your conversation with Eddie and going to the hospital and all that stuff. But when you're watching this match, are you uh, at gorilla? Are you sitting with Vince? What's Vince's reaction? Uh, I remember vividly sitting at gorilla and there's even a point in the match I think when Charles Robinson goes down that we had sent word with Charles, tell him to get out of there, um, go home, end it. And they didn't, they kept going. So I, I was at gorilla. I was afraid for Eddie's health and just wanted to, wanted to get him back and get him taken care of. So it was, it was frustrating and I had tunnel vision. I couldn't tell you who was with me, who was around me, anything like that. All I could tell you during the match was watching the match and cringing the, the more shit he did. So I kept waiting for him to just fall down and pass out. Right. It's, uh, it's pretty crazy that, you know, this is, I mean, do you think Guerrero I mean, I know we're saying it's human error, but do you think he wanted a little more? And I mean, this is, it's a big test for him. We've, we've talked a lot about the pressures that were on him as champion and how seriously he took this. Do you think he wanted a little more, but just didn't realize how much more he was going to get here? I don't know. You know, his dad made his name gory Guerrero for a reason. Uh, all of his matches were bloody and gory, but I don't think that. I, I, well, I know for a fact that Eddie did not plan on that much blood. Maybe once it came, they thought, oh, hell, this is great. This is great. This is going to add to the, to the match drama of it all. I just didn't think it did in hindsight. When you look at it, you go, man, that it just left people worried instead of 
invested in wanting him to kick JBL's ass. She just wanted him to go get help type of a thing. And it's, that's a tough call, especially when guys are out there in the middle of a great match like that. And I do remember saying, you know, end it. Let's go get him out of there. Go, just go to the finish because everything they did after that, you don't really remember until Eddie makes blows the big comeback uh, after the match. So they could have gone home right then and Eddie blown whatever comeback he could have blown and gone home and just got out of there. But that's all hindsight. That's 2020. It just uh, was a scary, scary night and seeing him back on the trainer's table and then putting the IVs in him to take him to the hospital. And the reason, and the only reason we were doing that was because he had lost a lot of blood and the gash needed to be stitched up. It didn't, it wasn't a super glue gash. It was one that needed stitches and he needed to get checked out by a doctor. So if you take him in an ambulance, they'll take you in right away. If you go walk in, you're going to sit there and wait for a while. And that was the original mindset. And then when Eddie ripped all the IVs out and stormed out of the room, it just, then it became the battle <laughs> looking at him and, just saying, Eddie, you know, two things are going to happen here. You can either get cleaned up, go to the hospital in the ambulance, or we'll sit here and watch and wait, and you'll pass out from loss of blood and fatigue, and you'll still go to the hospital, but you'll probably stay longer. I'm sorry. I know this is a silly question. Just bear with me for a minute. Do you think that Eddie felt like it was up to him to help get this match over because everybody heading into this, I mean, it was even written in the newsletters that the perception was that a JBL Eddie Guerrero main event wasn't really the attraction that was resonating with fans. And it was quote unquote dead. Do you feel like that Eddie may not have gone to this great extent? Had he had a match here with say an undertaker, a more established character, but now he's got you know, this, this big task, this unenviable task of I'm supposed to be the top draw and I've got it going against me that I've never been positioned as the top guy. I've only been champ for two months. I've got it going against me that I'm uh, smaller in stature or whatever. And now I'm in here, even though fans may be by me as a top guy, I, I'm supposed to help get over a brand new guy. Not like cement my footing as a main eventer against uh, the undertaker, a more established brand. But now I've got to get over this other guy that maybe fans aren't totally sold on yet. I need to do something special. I need to do something extra. And that's maybe we went too far as a result. Maybe I know that that was Eddie's charge and that was Eddie's challenge. And Eddie really wanted to get John over, knew that he could get him over. So that was Eddie Guerrero's charge was to make himself a new opponent, a believable opponent that he could draw money with. And they did. And that night is what did it. That took us, that took us, that was a prelude to the book. And, uh, we got a lot of nice chapters out of it. Let's talk about, um, you know, JBL, because he said if it had been anybody but Eddie Guerrero, you would have never heard of JBL. But because of Eddie, 
I had that incredible run and it was just the right time. I had the perfect foil and this incredible Latino star. He was one of my best friends. And JBL has also said that Eddie was a groomsman at his wedding. I mean, what did this match mean to the JBL character and just Layfield's career in general? Everything, because as, as I said, boy, it's a, that was a jumping off point. And Eddie could lay down. Eddie could have not wanted to go out and have that kind of match. But he did, and he made John Layfield a believable opponent and somebody that was mean and nasty that you could hate, a heel that you could actually hate with a baby face that you truly cared about and loved. So it was uh, so much of that is on Eddie Guerrero. And the, uh, the other part of it is, is Layfield stepped up. Layfield stepped up to the plate, swung for the fences, and hit a home run with it. Well, you watched Judgment Day 04 for the first time in a long time this week. Scale of 1 to 10, what do you give it? Eight and a half. Really? Yeah, I thoroughly enjoyed it. I didn't think I would. I, You know, again, full disclosure, I say this a lot. Um, a lot of times I sit down to watch and I think, well, I'm just going to fast forward through some of this shit. I remember this. Um, this was another one of those that I watched all the way through and stopped what I was doing because I'll try to multitask and do a lot of different things, but I stopped for the Cena Dupree match and the last match. It just had 100% of my attention, uh, two really great matches and a good story that ended up, uh, the night. And again, catapulted us into the summer. It did. And, uh, this was a fun time to go back and revisit this one, especially on the heels of our JBL show. We hope you guys have dug what we did this week with judgment day. Sorry. We were, we we're a week late on this one. Life threw us a curveball as it does from time to time, but, uh, we'll be back next week and we're doing something totally different next week, Bruce. It's going to be a Q and a episode and people have been asking for this one for a while. We don't do these maybe as often as we should, but I'm looking forward to next week, Bruce. How about you? Should be fun. Cue me and Amy. Oh, wait a minute. No, you do the Q. I do the A. Okay. I feel like. Why don't we flip that script? Yeah. I don't, I don't, I don't want to do any A with you. So. Okay. But I am looking forward to, uh, something to wrestle this Sunday. Check it out. You can watch live from anywhere. You have a smart device or an internet connection. Starcast on fight.com is the place. And as always. Leave us uh, some comments on Twitter. We want to hear from you. At Pritchard Show is our show account. He is at Bruce Pritchard. I am at Hey Hey It's Conrad. And we'll see you next week right here on Something to Wrestle with Bruce Pritchard. Shaka Khan. John brings his skewed sense of humor. Jeff brings tips to cut strokes off your next round. Together, it's those weekend golf guys. They'll pay a lot of money to PXG and Titleist and Callaway and on and on and on. Right? How many yards do you think you're going to pick up with that extra driver? I think I can get an extra 5 to 10. What if I give you 15 to 20? <laughs> you pay me more. Jeff Smith right? teaches on the sliding scale. <laughs> those weekend golf guys, the podcast, part of the Believe Network. Just search B-L-E-A-V on YouTube or wherever you listen.